welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Good morning, good morning. Well, I want to start this morning by talking to you about love. What do you think of when you think of love? What comes to mind? Do you think about your family? Do you think about the people sitting next to you? Hopefully you love them. Do you think about your friends? What, what does love look like, though, when you encounter it? I want you to think about the people that you know that truly love you. How do you know that they love you? Is it the way that they look at you? Is it the way that they make you feel inside? Is it the things that they say to you or, or the things that they do for you? I think the most prominent kind of love is substitutionary love, and our, our culture is filled with examples of it. This one pastor, uh, Pastor Rich Velotis, he uses these examples. He says, substitutionary love is, is found in our language. It's how we talk about things, how we express gratitude to someone. We just celebrated Memorial Day, and, and at Memorial Day, we, we celebrate and honor the people who have died in the armed forces, who have died for our freedom, and, and we say that, that is a sacrifice. When a soldier steps in front of another to take a bullet that was meant for another, they are substituting their life for another. We also see substitutionary love in movies like the Titanic. I'm gonna spoil it if you haven't seen it. I hope you've all seen it by now. Uh, in the Titanic, uh, Jack and Rose, they're in love and they are gonna do anything for one another. They, they are each gonna substitute their lives at every chance they get to save the other person. And we know that in the end of the movie, Jack substitutes his life. He makes sure that Rose gets on that floating debris and he saves her. He, he gives up his chance at survival for her. We also see substitutionary love in, uh, in songs, like a popular uh, pop song. It was really popular in my senior year of high school. It was called Catch a Grenade by Bruno Mars. The last service did not know this song. I don't know if this service does. Um, here's some of the lyrics. He says, I'll catch a grenade for you. Throw my head on a blade for you. I'd jump in front of a train for you. You know I'd do anything for you. I'd go through, sorry, <laughs> I'd go through all this pain, take a bullet straight through my brain. Yes, I'd die for you, baby, but you won't do the same. It's much catchier when he sings it, uh, but you wouldn't have enjoyed that. But the point of that song, which is a weird song, and it's a very terrible example of a relationship, but Bruno Mars is saying he is willing to have substitutionary love. He is willing to, to put his body on the line for the person that he loves. And at the heart of the gospel is the substitutionary love or, or sacrificial love. I'm going to use those interchangeably. Through Jesus, God displays sacrificial love by sending his son Jesus to the cross in our place as a substitute. And that's what we see in the story of Jonah. So today we're going to continue that account of the story of Jonah, a man who is running from God. He is a reluctant prophet, and he is terrified of the call God has given him. And when we use this story, we typically focus on the length that Jonah goes to run from God. But I think more important than that is, is that the story of Jonah, it displays the length that God is willing to go. He appoints Jonah. He directs a storm. He sends a fish, all so that those who are furthest from God might not perish. And this morning's text, and really the entirety of the book of Jonah, it shows us how intentional and purposeful God's love is. So that's one of the first themes of this sermon, is that I want us to take in the gravity of God's substitutionary love for us. I'm also going to go off the point that Pastor Luke made a couple weeks ago, that Jesus is the true and better Jonah. And in fact, Jesus' words in Matthew 12, he says that I am the one greater than Jonah. And we'll read that passage later on. So the second point of this sermon is that Jesus is the true and better Jonah, because while Jonah just offers his life for a few strangers, a few sailors, Jesus offers his life for the salvation of the world. 
both Jesus and Jonah, they knew the answer to that question that if you were here last week, Pastor Tim asked, to whom do you belong? They both believed that they belonged to God. They knew that. They both acted out of this pattern of substitution, but only one of them acted out of a pattern of love, acted out of love, and that was Jesus. Yes, Jonah participated in substituting his life for the, for the physical safety of these sailors, but Jesus, he came into the world, he bore our humanity, he went to the cross bearing our sin to redeem us physically and spiritually. So he became the greatest example, the greatest example and the greatest fulfillment of substitutionary love, and John Calvin calls it the wondrous exchange. So let's open to the text, uh, Jonah chapter 1, it's on page 774 in a pew Bible, or if you have a, a Bible app on your phone. And the reason I wanted us to hear the entire first chapter of Jonah this morning is because I, I think we need to remember where Jonah has come from, what his call was, and just how far he has run from God. So as you turn there, I will, let's, let's pray together. God, speak as only you can speak. May we return to you this morning in our time of worship as our one true love. Holy Spirit, may your presence captivate us anew. Amen. We're going to start in verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The sailors and Jonah, they are just being tossed around in this boat, and the sea is ready to envelop them. The sailors, they now know, right, that, that they didn't just bring on any passenger. They brought on someone who worships God, someone who worships who, a God who controls the land and the sea, someone who is better at their craft than them. They are seamen. This is their area, right? Their area of expertise. And they quickly realize they are at the mercy of someone greater than them. When we're in turmoil, one of the first things we ask is why. Why is this happening? Why me? And we can be consumed with that question. But whether we get an answer to that or not, almost certainly our next question is what can we do about it? God, how can we fix this? How, how can we stop this chaos? How do we return to a sense of peace and calm? What can we do? The enemy would love nothing more than for us to never ask that question, for us to just stay paralyzed in fear or guilt, become complacent. The enemy would love if we just learned to live in the chaos, learn to live in the mess that we've made. But when we learn to live with being seasick, that is not living. That is not what we were meant for. So when we seek to, to make right the wrong or, or change our posture or our actions, that opens the door so that God can move, that God can work. So I think we have to ask the question, what next? God, what can we do? And the sailors, they want that. They want to act. And Jonah tells them exactly what to do. And I, I wish that in my life, when I had a problem, and I asked the Lord what to do, that he gave me a very clear, specific answer. And if you've had that, let me know, because I'm, I'm praying for that. But for the second time in this story, we hear that, that Jonah speaks. The first time is when he's confident in who he serves. And the second time, he is confident in what must happen next. A lot of commentators, they wonder, what are Jonah's motivations at this point? Is Jonah really repentant? Is he turning back into a man of faith? Is he willing to offer his life for another? Or is this just a continued rebellion? Is he continuing to run from God, trying to escape God? Nothing in the text indicates that, that Jonah's actions would be motivated 
out of pure, a pure heart or any more orderly than any of our actions when we're in a, in a spot of chaos or a season of chaos. It would be amazing, though, if Jonah was quick to move. But if you've read the story of Jonah, you know that it is a slow process for him to turn from self-righteous pride. And, and, and so really, I think Jonah, he is a hero of our faith, but he's more of a human-like hero. He's like us. We are slow to turn from pride. We are slow to turn from our own ways. So most scholars, they land at Jonah's motivations being his concern for the sailors. He says, if you throw me in, he believes that they will benefit, not him. Look at verse 12. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah doesn't include himself in that benefit. It's all about them. And it's ironic because the reason Jonah refused God's call, his mission, was largely because he didn't want to extend mercy to an enemy of God or to a pagan nation. But these sailors that are before Jonah, the sailors that Jonah wants to save, they are pagans. And so for their sake, not for his own, Jonah wants this storm to cease. So whether he's reluctant or whether he's eager, this is the first time that Jonah is choosing to act selflessly. He has finally taken a step closer to God rather than a step further from God. And in that step, Jonah is demonstrating a willing surrender to substitutionary sacrifice. We've been using the book, uh, a book that Tim Keller wrote for this sermon series. And in that book, Tim Keller says, all life-changing love comes from some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. And if you're a parent, you know this. You know that once you become a parent, you have lost all freedom. You have lost, you've given up your time, your money, a lot of you. Uh, your, your freedom is gone for your child. When I was returning to college my last semester, I remember I packed up my car and I was going to drive down to LA. And I don't know what happened. I just got overwhelmed with anxiety. Just the fear of, of being able to like graduate soon and someone expected me to get a job. I just had a ton of anxiety and emotion and fear of the future. And I remember my parents, they didn't even say anything. They just got in the car. One parent, <laughs> one parent got in the front seat of my car in the driver's seat. The other parent took the other car. And they, were, they said, oh, we're just going to drive you halfway. I was like, OK, that makes me feel better. They drove me the whole way. They drove me all the way to LA. They had no plans. They had no hotel. They had no change of clothes. They did it because they loved me. Right? They lost time. They lost money. They lost energy so that I could gain peace and comfort. And I'm sure so many of you that are parents have done the same. That is the pattern of substitutionary love. You're willing to sacrifice for another. That is at the heart of the good news of Christ. Jonah, Jonah surrendered, not, not his life to the sailors, but in obedience to God. He had confessed his faith before the sailors, and he says that he feared and worshiped the Lord, the God of all creation. So whatever he did next was an act of surrender to that sovereign God. Most of us, we know that, the, that we have a faith that we profess, and we know the hope that we have, and we declare it. But then when we're faced with this choice of being obedient to God, we sometimes take a step back, right? We can, with our voice, proclaim who we serve, that we serve a sovereign God, and we love him. But then with our feet, we withdraw. We move away from God. And that's what the sailors do. Look down at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. In other words, Jonah has said, throw me in. I deserve to die, not you. But instead, the sailors rode back to land. We all have these nevertheless moments, right? These moments where God gives us an answer, an invitation to choose to obey him. 
But no, we, we change course and we go on our own path. And sometimes it's because we think we know best. Sometimes we're scared of what God has asked of us. But it doesn't have to take a call like Jonah's for us to disobey God. You could have sensed uh, the desire to pray for somebody, a stranger, or maybe you see somebody in need of a meal and you don't. You ignore God's call and you turn, turn away. Or maybe you've heard the testimony of one of our missionaries, like Siska shared about ISI, or you hear about uh, one of our deacons, who they support, and you, you just sense something in you changes. God is breaking your heart for his people, and he is stirring you to, to volunteer or serve or give, and you think, no, that's not from God. <laughs> no, like he could find a smaller way, an easier way, a less involved way for me to help. And despite these nevertheless moments, there's always a but God moment that follows. We've tried to make our own way and God still intervenes. He still receives us back and that's what happens to the sailor. They turn to this God that is foreign to them and they ask for mercy. When the sea had first started storming, they had each hurried to their God, their individual God. They had many gods and they prayed, they prayed to them, praying that, that peace would come and they received nothing, no changes. So they listened to Jonah. They listened to, to his God and they decided to pray to him. Verse 14, it says, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In, this, in this, these verses, Jonah is, or they're using the covenantal name for God. So it's really clear that they have switched from praying to their many gods to praying to Yahweh, to the same God that Jonah prayed to, surrendered to. They've acknowledged who he is. And this prayer is their, like, they're waving a white flag of surrender, saying, God, <laughs> we need help. And there's not enough in this text that, that would convince us that they have come to a point of salvation. But something is sure is they have a new understanding of the sovereign power of God. In verse 5, they were afraid of the storm. And then in verse 10, they say they're afraid of Jonah. But now at verse 16, at the end of the chapter, they're saying they have a fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a combination of wonder and apprehension for God. Psalm 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These sailors, they are at the beginning of understanding who God is. Even if they didn't abandon their other gods, even if they still worship them. They were changed by this encounter with God. Something in their spirit shifted. Something changed in them. Their fear changed. Their response changed. The way they talked to God changed. That newfound fear, it moved them to act, to follow what Jonah said and throw him into the sea. The most unlikely people, these, these pagan polytheistic sailors, they are expressing submission to God in word and then in deed. And we see this all over scripture. We see how the quote-unquote outsider, this unlikely character, submits to God when those who are quote-unquote considered insiders don't. We see this with Rahab, the prostitute, in, in Joshua 2, where she helps the Israelites. We see this with Cornelius in Acts 10. He hears from God and he immediately responds. And then we'll see this in Jonah 3, the Ninevites. Despite being an enemy of God, far from God's reach, they repent and they believe. All of these examples, they point to the limitless power of God. Despite our plans, God's will will prevail, even when we push against it, even when we try and divert from the course. So when we say that God is sovereign, 
We believe that because even when we feel like we're jumping into the deep end, God is with us. Let's finish the passage in verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the sea has calmed. And the provision of the fish at that exact moment, that was directly from the Lord. That word appointed, God appointed it. It was, it was not a coincidence. That was all because of the Lord. These men, they couldn't have imagined that a fish would swallow Jonah and he would live to tell the tale. They had no idea that underneath this raging sea, God was providing a whale, a fish. And they didn't see the full picture that in three days, Jonah would, would come out of the fish and he would continue on his mission. All they knew, though, was that God's power was real, that God was on the mood, and they chose to obey. And in this small way, I, I want to be like these sailors. I want, without having the full picture of what God is up to, without seeing everything resolved, they chose to surrender, and they chose to surrender in word and in action. What has God asked of you that needs that response? Let prayer be that first step of surrender. And if you've prayed about that, let, let your action steps be steps of faith towards God. Now, the story of Jonah isn't complete without looking at the sign of Jonah and the miracle of Jonah being in the belly of the fish. It is this signpost. It points to what is coming, the pattern of substitutionary love of Christ. So let's look at Matthew 12, verse 38 to 41. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus knew exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees wanted. He had already performed so many miracles to confirm that he was the son of God. And yet he knew that what they were seeking was just something to use against him. So he declares, the sign has been given to you. The prophet Jonah, the sign of the prophet Jonah, that's it. Jonah, because he was rescued by God, that was a sign to the Ninevites that the message he brought was from God. And the Ninevites received that sign. They understood what Jonah said, and that led them to repentance. Therefore, no other sign was left except for Jesus himself, except for his death, his three days in the earth, and his resurrection. So he stood before the Pharisees and declared, someone greater than Jonah is here that stands before you. The sign has been given to you. The question is, will you accept it? Will you repent? Jesus is relentless at running towards humanity. And as he says in Matthew 12, he calls humanity an evil and adulterous generation. That's us. Jesus runs towards us. He willingly becomes incarnate and willingly goes to the cross because of our sins. Unlike Jonah, who is relentless, who is running from God and from his enemies, Jonah requires a storm and these sailors and a giant fish and more for him to finally sacrifice. While Jesus, he willingly steps up to the plate and subs in for us. When Jonah is thrown into the sea, he appeases the wrath of God that is towards him. The storm and the chaos, it is a direct result of his sin disobedience. Yes, he has some concern for the sailors and, and them being saved, but ultimately it's about him. When Jesus is thrown on the cross and Jesus dies, he takes upon himself the wrath of God that is coming straight for us, that is directed at our disobedience, at our running from God, and he stands in the gap 
He stands in our place as a substitute. The Apostle Paul, he comments on why Jesus would do this, why Jesus would willingly enter into this pattern. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul's point is that God's love shows up in this substitutionary way. And, and Karl Barth, he's a Swiss theologian, he was asked, what's the most important word in the New Testament, the most important Greek word? And he says, hyper. And hyper, it's a prepositional phrase, meaning on behalf of or in place of. And we see this used when Jesus is with the disciples at the Last Supper in Matthew 26. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out hyper for many, on behalf of many. See this in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life, hyper, for the sheep, in place of the sheep. And Paul uses that phrase, hyper, four times in those verses of Romans 5. The gospel message is the best display of substitutionary love. The world was rescued by an act of substitution. Our sins were forgiven by an act of substitution. So Karl Barth's point is that our faith in Christ, it hinges on that truth that in salvation, Jesus takes our place. And on our behalf, he took the punishment of death so that we might have life in him. Jesus, he becomes the offering that turns away the wrath of God directed at us, and he receives it with the full force. In love, Jesus was the atoning sacrifice for human sin. He accomplishes restoration and redemption and reconciliation. Just like God chased down Jonah relentlessly, Jesus chases us down. He pursues us out of love, paying the price for our disobedience and suffering the consequences for our sin, which is death. Do you see, do you see how greatly God loves you? How madly he is in love with you? Do you see the image of true love on that cross in its fullest form? God is in love with you. Enough to sacrifice his son Jesus so that we, church, that we might live, so that we, the unrighteous ones, we might be made righteous, we might be cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. That is the sign of Jonah. It stretches beyond a numerical parallel of three days in the belly of the fish and three days in the earth. Jesus says the sign of Jonah is on display when the Ninevites, they finally repent and they finally call on the mercy of God. So if we, church, if we believe and receive that Jesus is Lord and Savior, then the sign of Jonah is in us. It should be in us. We will be people who repent and seek the mercy of God. This week, I was telling someone about the students I used to work with when I was in college. And I said something like, they were the most unlikely kids to follow Christ. And this person said to me, well, aren't we all? Aren't we all the most unlikely people? And it's true. We are. But it's really easy to think that those people out there, those people outside this building, they are the unlikely ones. And we are the likely ones. But in reality, we are all equally far from God. This group right here, we are a surprising bunch of people. We are people who are separate from Christ, who were separate from Christ, who didn't understand the eternal promise, the covenant of promise, as Ephesians 2.12 says. And just like the sailors and the Ninevites were people outside of God, so were we. We are a misfit cast of characters, and together, under one roof, we make up one body, one fellowship. And that's because we, we are under this promise that by scripture alone, for the glory of God alone, God shows his sign in Jonah. 
that he saved us, that he rescued us. The sign of Jonah, the sign of Jesus, the one greater than Jonah, is in Jesus' resurrection. It is in us being born again in Christ. So rather than continuing to look for signs in the church the way the Pharisees did, I suggest that we start by looking at the sign of Jonah, the pattern of Jesus' substitutionary love that is marked by sacrifice, that has brought us, all of us, the furthest ones out under the shadow of his wing, into his family. As the true and better Jonah, Jesus died for the ungodly, the sinner, and his enemy. And so the the shape of Jesus' sacrificial love, it takes its best form on the cross. So how will you respond? Marvel at it. Marvel at the wondrous exchange that Jesus gave himself for you. Understand the pattern of substitutionary love and participate in it. Once we have a sense of what Jesus has done for us, what he's accomplished for us, our lives begin to be shaped by a love that is willing and sacrificial, that gives itself to other people. In a moment, uh, we're gonna continue in worship with singing, but I want you to use this time to respond. Whether you sing or you pray or you sit or you stand, use this time to respond to that sacrifice. Rejoice in the fact the lengths God has gone to demonstrate his love to you. Express the gratitude that we have, he continually pursues us wherever we go. And consider how the Lord might use you to demonstrate his sacrificial and substitutionary love to the world. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.